Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Reports coming out of Israel in the months since it was savagely attacked and it responded by declaring war on its attackers. I'm not going to discuss politics here this morning, but I would like to take a moment this morning to read a short observation by a commentator. And as you listen, I want you to think about how you felt when you first heard the news of the brutal conflict. The commentator says, Today your hearts are moved as you hear the harrowing details of war. They have been dreadful indeed. Houses burned, happy families driven as vagabonds upon the face of the earth. Domestic circles and quiet households broken up. Men wounded, mangled, massacred by thousands, and starved. But the miseries of war, if they were confined to this world alone, were nothing compared with the enormous catastrophe of tens of thousands of spirits accursed by sin and driven by justice into the place where their worm never dies and their fire is not quenched. This is a very stark, poignant, and timely observation. The speaker is aware of human suffering in all of its forms. But what he brings to light that most don't is an eternal perspective. You see, these words were given 153 years ago. They came from Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher. In 1871, he gave them in the context of the conflict at that time called the Franco-Prussian or Franco-German War about the worst atrocities that human beings conceive of and and commit are perpetrated during wars. And yet, as Spurgeon detailed for us, these gut-wrenching sufferings and outcomes are nothing, nothing compared with the torment of hell. Let that sink in for a moment. It's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who have power to kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. Hell is so grievous. And our Lord's heaven is so wondrous that we ought to do everything in our power to implore people to receive God's free gift of salvation. We ought to really shudder and tremble and sweat great drops at the thought that someone we know is headed for eternal torment. After all, life's most vexing question is, what happens after I die? And if I know the answer to that question, but I don't desire to share it with everyone I can, I dare say calling myself a Christian is a lie. You heard me correctly. It, it, should, it should grate on our very fabric of you and I. It should keep us awake at night and cause us to question our own faith 
if you and I don't desire to share this beautiful answer to death with the people that we know. It's kind of like the doctor, a doctor having a cure for a fatal disease and not giving it to his patients. I dare say he or she does not deserve the title of doctor. My brothers and sisters in Christ, our loved ones who don't have the cure to death need it. They need to know Christ. They need to know the one who has saved them from the wrath of Almighty God himself, a real place known as hell. They need this more than they need oxygen in their lungs. But how will they hear about him? How will they hear about the cure? Some years ago, a popular outspoken magician by the name of Penn Gillette, he offered his take on Christians and the, the whole idea of evangelism. And keep in mind, Gillette is an avowed atheist, very outspoken about it. Here's what he said. It's up on the monitor, I believe. Yeah. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not going to eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I think Gillette went where most Christians aren't even willing to go. And he's an atheist. So let me ask you, do you think of it as hateful to refrain from sharing the gospel with somebody? Is that a word that you would consider? The word hate? Do you really think we can label it hate to withhold the greatest news the world will ever know? Would you call it hateful to possess the key to heaven and keep it only to yourself? This atheist does. And I think it's approaching a fair label to attach. So now let's flip that around. We think the opposite of hate is love, so do you think it loving to stay quiet just to avoid making someone and yourself uncomfortable? Is it love or loving to just go along to get along, say in a group situation where the topic of religion comes up? Whether you know a person is a born-again Christian or not, can you truly love them by never telling them the gospel? Well, you might say, I'm waiting for the right time. I'm hoping to build a relationship. I'm hoping the opportunity presents itself. Well, I would ask, is that loving? To let a person go on week after week, month after month, blind to what awaits on the other side of death? How do you know you have weeks? How do you know that person has weeks? How do you know you have any time to wait? To me, it seems pretty obvious. Of course it's hateful to hold back information that could cure someone for eternity. And of course it is loving to give people this message. But sadly, in our 21st century culture, particularly here in America, I fear the opposite is true. As with many things in our day, what seems right is labeled wrong. What seems good is labeled bad. It's kind of just what the Bible says is going to happen in the latter days, isn't it? In our culture, 
it is actually considered hateful to proselytize. And loving just to be quiet, to avoid conflict or avoid making somebody feel offended or uncomfortable. After all, the biggest sin in our culture is what? Being offended, causing offense. Let's not succumb to that way of thinking. That's the worldly way of thinking that leads to death. Instead, let's heed 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, where Paul writes, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is offensive to those trapped in sin. The gospel is also their way out of the trap. So we must share that. Now, it's not our role to determine who to share it with. It's not our role to convert someone to Christ. Salvation, we know, is granted solely by God. He opens a person's eyes. He opens a person's ears. He opens the person's mind to the truth of his word. We merely share that truth, and we let God work. Some will receive it. Some will reject it, just like they did in Jesus' day. It's no different today than it was then. It's no different then than it was today. We look at Ephesians 2.17. It says, and he, meaning Jesus, he came and preached peace to those who were far off, and peace to those who were near. So he preached peace to the Gentiles or unbelievers. He preached peace to those who were the Jews or his chosen ones. You see, Jesus gave the word to all. And we are to imitate Christ. Therefore, we have the duty to give the word of God to all. And that's exactly what the word of God says. You know this famous portion of scripture where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 19. And so I want you right now to please turn in your Bibles to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 13. We're going to see what our role is in making disciples of all nations, if that's what Christ calls us to. What's our role? Here we go. Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So that is our role. Preach the good news. I don't mean stand up here and preach from a pulpit, although if that's what you're called to do, then that's what you're called to do. Please do it. 
But we preach the good news orally, verbally, just wherever we are, to whomever we go. And those whom God chooses to save, we in the church are to nurture and teach and care for. And nurture and teach and care for. And what are we to do in the church? Nurture and teach and care for them. In other words, we are to make disciples. God chooses who to do, do that with. We share. He decides. And as a church, we make, the, we make the disciples. Now the question arises, if God has already chosen his people for salvation, why do we have to share the gospel? I mean, won't God use someone else, something else? Can't he do it however he wants to do it? In other words, why does he need us? Well, he needs us and he's chosen to use us because people are in great need. They are blinded by the God of this world, Satan. They, their eyes are shut to the things of Christ. Jesus says unbelievers are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So our Lord has graciously made us his chosen instruments to give the eye-opening prescription to life after death. Wow. Now let me ask, if you had family members or friends right now trying to flee the Gaza Strip, wouldn't you be doing everything in your power to save them? You would probably spend any kind of time, effort, money to ensure their passage to freedom. That's a no-brainer. And yet, to put it in basic terms, that's just a temporary help for them, really. So why are not we even more motivated to do all we can to tell people about fleeing the wrath of God? Why don't we stop at nothing to ensure their passage to freedom? A passage that's not temporary. It's a freedom that is eternal. My message today, it's not to heap guilt on anyone. It's a message designed to show compassion. True compassion in the face of everyone's greatest enemy, which is death, spiritual death. No one avoids it. Everyone has to come have, that, uh, have an answer to deal with it. And so do we care if others come up with the right answer? Do we make sure that they have the right answer? We must care. And if not, you and I better check ourselves because the Bible says we must care. And so my next question is, do we care if others are uncomfortable with the topic of the gospel and if they reject it? I mean, they may reject what we say is the right answer, but this doesn't mean that we avoid sharing it in the first place. For we know that they are not rejecting you and I, they are rejecting Jesus whom we represent. This is what seems to stop most people, by the way, from sharing the gospel with loved ones. The idea that they possibly and most likely will oppose us. They may even get mad at us for trying to convert them. This idea that it, it might make them or us uncomfortable and, and uh, that they might be offended, that word. 
Let me tell you, Charles Spurgeon here. He says, calamities occurring to our fellow men naturally awaken in us a feeling of commiseration. But what calamity under heaven can be equal to the ruin of a soul? What misery can be equal to that of a man cast away from God and subject to his wrath, world without end? There is no misery equal to that. And then he added, the revelation of God concerning the doom of the wicked is so overwhelming as to make it penal, nay, I was about to say damnable, to be indifferent or careless in the work of evangelizing the world. In other words, Spurgeon is saying that you and I deserve damnation if we are apathetic about telling people the gospel. That's strong. But he is calling into question yours and my very standing as Christians if we just brush aside our privilege and honor to share the gospel with others. For you and I to have received this unfathomable gift of forgiveness of sin and everlasting life and to not tell others is very unchristian. And Spurgeon goes so far as to say that even being careless in sharing the gospel is unpardonable. Hmm. So, not studying the gospel, not practicing gospel sharing, not praying for your gospel sharing, not handling God's word carefully when gospel sharing, not preparing for gospel sharing opportunities, not caring about unbelievers' salvation. All these things add up to carelessness. You wouldn't handle an important business meeting this way. Or you wouldn't go on stage to perform without being very careful to prepare. You wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't play for a sports team or, or try to win a championship this way. Not at all. You would apply yourself diligently. You would devote much of your spare time, much of your thoughts and your energies into whatever your chosen pursuit is because we give our energies, we give our thoughts and our time to those things that we love the most. And so, how come sharing the gospel, devoting ourselves to, to this pursuit takes a back seat? Shouldn't this be above just about everything else? Isn't this the very reason our Lord formed you and I in our mother's wombs and chose us for salvation before he laid the foundations of the earth? He made you and I to be his representatives on earth. That's why he saved us from his wrath. And he even took the wrath of the Father on himself to save us from the pit of hell. Hell is the destination we deserve because of our sin. So out of extreme gratitude, out of gratefulness, we ought to be running to others with this good news. Chances are someone did this for you, so now it's your turn. Knowing the fear of the Lord, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, we persuade others. We persuade others. Because we know the fear of the Lord. You know what reconciliation is, right? Reconciliation, particularly in relationships, when we're at odds with somebody and we come back together, we say we have reconciled our differences. 
We have resolved the conflict. God calls his work to reclaim sinful people reconciliation. So the conflict is that human beings, humans are saturated with sin, and God cannot have sin in his presence. And so God made a way to reconcile these two competing attributes. He took the sin from us by his death on the cross. Death, we know, is the penalty for sin. And then he rose to new life after three days and ascended to heaven, where he now gives us the honor of boldly coming to him. And so not only did God reconcile us to himself through Jesus Christ, he, quote, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 5. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Did you see that? We now have this ministry, the very ministry Christ had when he was upon earth. He has given that to us. So God's work is complete. It is finished. When he was on the cross, when he was resurrected, his work is complete. And so as he unfolds the results of that work over time, now we get to minister to people with a life-saving gospel. What an incredible, beautiful honor this is. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians 5. Where he writes, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So why ought we implore people? That's a strong word, implore. It doesn't connote a casual, flippant air about it. It means to passionately and earnestly seek the reconciliation between their record of sin and God's pure holiness. And Paul tells us very succinctly in that passage, the whole reason we can implore people to receive Christ's salvation it's because of what Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father made the Son sin, so that in him we might become his righteousness. Wow. Without this, we are doomed to spiritual death forever. Only his work frees us from this penalty, the penalty of spiritual death known as hell. But there's more. Not only are we freed from this penalty and spared the real torment, we are promised to be seen by God as clean. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's perfect record of sinlessness is applied to us. Wow. We certainly don't have this record on our own. We build up a, a deep well of sin on our record until someone, likely multiple people, care enough to tell us the gospel, to tell us that Christ's sacrifice takes away our sin and that Christ's grace gives us his righteousness so if we leave these mortal bodies and face God 
we are seen as he sees Jesus Christ, pure, unstained, declared to be worthy to be called one of his children. Someone told you that. Someone cared for you enough to share it. Someone preached to you. Someone had compassion on your soul. They saw you as you were at the time, harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. And they set aside their concerns about what you would think of them. And they lovingly poured into you the life-giving nourishment of the gospel. They led you from the parched waterless desert of this world to the springs of life. And at some point, the water of God's word satisfied your thirst. You turned from the flames of hell to the refreshment of life everlasting. And you realize there is only one who can satisfy and take you from death to life, the one who is Christ. God's compassion for you did not fail. Even when you sinned against him, perhaps for decades, his compassion did not relent. He did not give up. He didn't back off. He saw you as desperately needing what he provided, and he pursued you. God pursued you. That's mercy. Lamentations 3.22 says, It is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And why aren't we consumed? The verse continues, Because his compassions fail not. They never fail. God's compassion is foolproof. I want to take us back to a point early in Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been moving about the region, mainly on foot, healing people, being rejected by those in his own hometown of Nazareth, being pressed on all sides by huge crowds of people. It's exhausting work. He must be drained. And amidst this, Jesus has sent out his apostles to various locales to preach. He gives them authority to cast out demons, heal the sick. During this time, they also hear the gut-wrenching news that John the Baptist has been beheaded. The apostles go out of their way to take his body and lay it in the tomb. And eventually, they return to Jesus, and they report all they have done and seen. Meanwhile, crowds of people continue to surround them. They make it hard on Jesus and the apostles to even take a break to eat. Between the fatigue and the emotion, Jesus in his full humanity is weary. And so we are told in Mark 6 that Jesus instructs his apostles to go away in a boat with him to a remote place to rest a while. But a crowd of more than 5,000 they go on land, they, know, they see where they're headed, and they run on land, and they, they get there, reach the place ahead of Jesus and the apostles. And verse 34 of Mark 6 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Some translations say Jesus was moved with compassion. Now I'm sure not all in this crowd were too lovable. Many of them had 
many motives, I'm sure, for chasing Jesus, and those motives may not have exactly been pure. It would have been easy for him and, and the apostle, maybe not him because he's without sin, but for you and I to think, well, they aren't worth my time. Uh, you know, I've got more important things to do, like sleep. And yet Jesus stopped what he was doing. He looked him in the eyes and he gave him the gospel because they were lost. And they might not have known it, but they were desperately lost and in danger of heading to, into eternity in their sin. Only someone who cared enough to overcome his own discomfort could have led them to hear God's message of reconciliation. So think of a time when you were stretched really thin. The kids are misbehaving. Boss gives you an extra assignment, makes you stay late. Your car breaks down. It seems like everything just happens at once. And you just want to pack it in, right? So what if at that moment thousands of people show up expecting you to perform for them? Would you be moved with compassion for that? Jesus saw them that way. And he wants us also to see them as they were and as we once were, which is sinners needing saving. The people crowding Jesus were dead in their trespasses. They were doomed to a Christless eternity. And so Jesus set aside his own desire to rest to give, him, give them his own word. And that word is called the bread of life. He is called the bread of life. Well, guess what? He also ministered to them with actual bread, a physical meal. In short, he thought of, of their needs above his own. He put their needs ahead of his own. And so, how do you and I see other people? Do we see them as harassed and helpless? Because that is who they are apart from Christ. So how much do you and I care? We need to set aside our own comfort to give them God's word of salvation. We need to think of their needs over our own. And let me give you an illustration. I eagerly borrow this from uh, the evangelist from the Living Waters Ministry, Ray Comfort. He's got great illustrations. Uh, but he says... You're driving down the street and you see a wooden house on fire. The flames are coming out of the basement. They're going to consume the house in about five minutes. Then you look upstairs and you see a whole family up there unaware of their danger. There are stairs, wooden stairs, up along the left side of the house. What are you going to do? Are you going to just barge in and tell them? Well, let's say the door's shut. What if they say, hey, look, buddy, this is my house. It's private property. You're not allowed to come bursting in here. Get out. Would you just say, yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. Or would you say no? Because you know this is too important to let them misunderstand your motive. Well, here's the problem. Everyone's house is on fire until they receive Christ. And most don't even realize it. They don't see sin in its true light. They don't see that lying, stealing, blasphemy, 
are serious crimes against God's law, and they don't know that they are in terrible, mortal danger. They will have to stand before the judge and be found guilty of their crimes against him. So don't let a little opposition deter you. Don't let a person go down in flames without a fight. And I'm not talking about a, an antagonistic fight, but a loving, compassionate urging. Beseech them. Make a heartfelt appeal. Plead with him or her. Love that person enough to implore him or her to hear the gospel. Even if you're tired or weary or stressed out, even if that person says, yeah, no, I don't need your religion, don't just carelessly pass them by. It could be that you're the only Christian that they encounter that week or month or lifetime. If that person goes past you without hearing the gospel, they might never hear it. That's a reality. And who says they have tomorrow even? 150,000 people die every 24 hours, many of them young. So please, don't wait. Remember, Jesus has given us the ministry, his ministry of reconciliation, and he doesn't do this unless he gives us the tools to do it. Ephesians 1 says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And James says we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then he adds, he who is a doer of the word will be blessed in his doing. So see that person as our Lord sees him or her, which is desperately needing him. Young or old, doesn't matter. Without Christ, they're without hope. You may be sitting here right now thinking of a person. And you're thinking, well, you know, I've got plenty of time. My mom or dad or brother, sister, coworker, friend, neighbor, doctor, whoever. They're not going to go anywhere soon. I'll, I'll, I'll get to them. I've got time. But you don't know that. I don't know that. People die from sudden accidents all the time at any age, in any place. God has actually appointed a time for you and I to die and then face judgment. So don't let people go stand before the judge at their appointment without hearing the gospel. We must preach it to every, everyone everywhere. Now is the day of salvation, God says. And James he even gives us a little incentive. He says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow, what a blessing. What a blessing that we get to experience that. What a gift. There is <clears throat> so much more we could cover in discussing our, our God-given privilege to share the gospel. Uh, today's message is all about the motive, the why. Uh, we could go into great detail about the who, the what, the where, the when, and the how. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave those for another time. And I'll take this opportunity to, to make a little plug here. Um, if you want to sharpen those parts of sharing the gospel, things like just how to easily open up a conversation, um, how to let lead people to see 
their sin in its true light and then have them thank you for it. Um, come to our 930, or 945 adult, adult, adult core class starting January 14th. Uh, we're we're going to be launching a, a, a short series there that uh, will equip you to be bolder than you ever thought you could be. Um, we all desire to be the Lord's ambassadors. I think that's that's true. As soon as as soon as we understand what God has done for us, we want to to do His work. Um, these sessions will give you those tools to step out and do it. Uh, even the most hesitant of us, even the most shy, will be uh, benefited by it. And so please commit to join us. It's free. You don't have to pay. Just show up at 9.45, starting January 14th. Now, in closing, thanks for hearing my plug. Uh, our role as God's ambassadors, it does have its challenges. There, there's no doubt about it. But as we've talked about today, the biggest challenge often is simply how we view other people. I like how a gentleman named Emile Zwayne put it. He spoke at an evangelism conference that I attended last summer. And he said this about sharing the gospel with others. It's on the board. If you can read it, the type seems pretty small. But he says, compassion is the most common attribute missing, meaning in evangelism. Though we receive the most divine compassion, meaning the saving sacrifice of Christ. Zwayne calls this the foundation of Christian witnessing. In other words, the most important thing, the foundation, the base, isn't knowing all the answers. It's not having the perfect gospel tract or having the right comeback to every objection. Nope, as Wayne says, having compassion for the ones with whom we share is the foundation. And he says, if you miss the mark with this, you miss the whole meaning. He says, it's easy to be involved in Christian activities without the right heart. We can't afford to misrepresent the Lord. Good words. And Ray Comfort, he says, we've been called to fight the precious fight for the precious souls of men and women and our commitment will only be as deep as our love. A shallow love for sinners will produce a shallow concern for their salvation. The Bible says we are to contend for the faith. We're to contend for it. Comfort expands on that by saying our motive for contending with the lost is not to explain ourselves. We're not trying to maintain some sort of intellectual dignity. Rather, we are terrified for them because of what will happen if they die in their sins. My brothers and sisters, today, let's commit to having the right heart for the lost. Have compassion for them like, like our Lord does. And let that compassion to move us to open our mouths with the most precious words ever created, the saving message of our Lord that he has reconciled sinful humanity to his perfect self. This is our breathtaking, the breathtaking gospel. May it be said of us, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. <coughs> Let's pray. Dear wonderful Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the message of recon reconciliation that you have entrusted to us. 
May we be trustworthy with that ministry. Lord, may we see others as you see them. May we see them as we once were, desperately needing you. Lord, may we desire all who we come in contact with to come into your heaven, to be saved from eternal torment. Lord, you are such a good God. You are good enough to gather us here this morning to sing songs of praise and worship, to hear a message, to read your word, to fellowship with each other. Lord, as we embark on, uh, on a calendar year, may we set to it to see people in a new light, to care for them, to look them in the eyes, to, to not shrink back, because you've given us the tools to be able to share the gospel. Lord, what a privilege and an honor it is. So we merely thank you, we praise you, we honor you with every breath that you give. And we praise you in the name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.